Thank you for joining us on this episode of Quarantine. Today we will be discussing the evolution of many things. This is quite a weird title, I know, but let me explain. Last year, I made a project that helped others understand what evolution is, not using scientific examples, but instead using things like art, singing, dancing, etc. This may be a bit of a shorter episode, but it should be interesting and entertaining. Also, have you heard this audio quality? Thank you to our amazing sponsors for making this difference, and I'm going to go ahead and say that this is Mayono, sure, for making this perfect microphone. Let's begin with one minute of headlines to update you and the world around us. One, New York Post started off this Tuesday by stating JetBlue becomes the first U.S. airline to require passengers to wear face masks. Two, CBS This Morning reported Pentagon officially releases UFO videos. Three, earlier today, CNN claimed Trump tells governors to seriously consider and maybe get going on opening schools. World News. One, CBS News informed readers that Prime Minister Ardern says New Zealand has won battle against community spread of coronavirus. Yay, New Zealand! Two, Reuters published Kim Jong-un may be trying to avoid coronavirus, says South Korea. Three, Forbes discussed how Italy looks forward to phased return of daily life after two months of lockdown. Business news. One, Southwest warns that Renovue Revenue could drop as much as 95% uh, in May, claimed Yahoo Finance. Sports news. One, according to ESPN, 32 NFL players most likely to be cut or traded after the NFL draft, uh, 2020 NFL draft. Other news. And finally, Fox Good News informed us that Pennsylvania teens sending coloring book puzzles to seniors in nursing homes. Now, let's jump into this episode with an introduction. A thorough description of the origins of evolution. This is an introduction. From marine wildlife to mammals to humans, species, the smallest group one can mate, are still evolving. Natural selection, the selection that nature makes, or survival of the fittest, is a concept first introduced by Charles Darwin after his trip to the Galapagos Islands and his observations of the different finches. Coming to the conclusion that one finch from South America drifted out to sea, then adapted to its climate, and only the best of its eggs would survive, he created the beginning of modern-day evolution in a highly religious society. So I'm going to call this an experiment. It's not exactly an experiment, but it's interesting. Um, So the way they kind of figured this out was by taking two different species of the birds, the finches. So species A was Geospiza forsis. It is one of the species of finch on the Galapagos Islands. HHMI Biointeractive states, with its shorter, blunter beak, the finch can only eat cactus seeds once they fall to the ground. However, it can also crack open some of the larger and sturdier species of seeds that the other finch cannot open. And then species B. Geospiza scandin is another species that lives on the same island as the fortis, yet it has developed different traits. From the same source, the finch has a long pointed beak capable of probing and opening cactus fruits to eat the seeds. It can also eat the pollen and nectar of cactus flowers. To see a map of where Charles Darwin went, this was something I forgot to include in the last episode, um, I made a map 
online that's just like an interactive map. And so the link is in the show notes. Um, it's pretty cool. All right. And then the results in the discussion. Many things have shown researchers that natural selection is real. Natural selection was what generated from Darwin's studies. Variation, as seen in the difference in species A and B, overproduction creates competition, aforesaid survival of the fittest, adaptation, where one changes to best fit their environment, and descent with modification, babies may adapt or mutate change in genes. Uh, These are what make up Darwin's theory. Researchers believe this, as they have seen the relation in animals and descent from their common ancestor in the early embryonic development. So now we're going to move on, and it's no more science. We're talking about singing. (laughs) Singing, dancing, and music, a timeline, an introduction. Music shows that humans are the pinnacle of evolution because it shows the mental development that people have gradually created. Unlike other species, humans can communicate using movements and even pitching in specific frequencies to the same tune to express feelings and emotions. Lawrence University states, singing, the vocal production of musical tones, is so basic to to man its origins are long lost in antiquity and predate the development of spoken language. The voice is presumed to be the original musical instrument, and there is no human culture, no matter how remote or isolated, that does not sing. Not only is singing ancient and universal, in primitive cultures it is an important function associated not so much with entertainment or frivolity, or frivolity, I don't know how to say the word, as with matters vital to the individual, social group, or religion. And then here's some statistics. So according to Polly and Mullen-Seifen, sure, in order to obtain a comprehensive understanding of sing-along behavior in modern Western society, it is necessary to look at the phenomenon different from, sorry, from different perspectives and relate it to literature from distinct areas of academic study. This shows that once the origins of singing began, Western society came up with a norm of singing along. The hypothesis that can be drawn from the results is that when the percentage of people singing along increases, the frequency decreases. So now we'll talk a little bit about dancing. The dance has always been with us, even before the arrival of written language and modern history, when our earliest cultures evolved utilizing oral and performance methods to pass stories from one generation to the next. Many historians believe that social, celebratory, and celebratory, sorry, and ritual dances are one of the essential factors of the development of early human civilizations. Um, The earliest findings have pinpointed the origins of ancient dances in the 9,000-year-old India or 5,300-year-old Egypt, but the record's more common infusion of dance into a modern culture can be found from ancient Greece, China, and India. All these old dances evolved, eventually morphing into a wide variety of Roman and European medieval dances, traditional Chinese dances, Hindi, and other traditional dances, respectively. First archaeological archaeological proof of dance comes from the 9,000-year-old cave paintings in India. After the arrival of the European Renaissance, the history of music and dance exploded with the new additions to song and dance. Ease of travel and immigration to the New World brought these techniques into the mix with many native cultures of the New World, forging countless new dance types that are still popular to this day. And all of those quotes were taken from dance facts. So now we'll talk about art. So this isn't music, but it is still very similar. Art is quite a fascinating subject. The first visible art has been discovered in the Lascaux cave paintings from 
uh, that looks like 15,000 BC, a quite developed fresco of a toreador can be seen in Athens, and Egyptian art like the death mask of Tutankhamun. Yep, that's it. Are some of the most influential in early forms. Much modern day art shows how these evolve. National Geographic states 5,000 years before that, half a million years ago, they were making tools that were incredibly beautiful and more symmetrical and aesthetic than they had to be to do their jobs. Art is very deep in human history. So now we're just going to kind of go through this pretty quickly. I just didn't want to, I don't know, I thought this was going to be a topic that I think I could discuss more in a future episode because a lot of my family um, is really interested in art. My mom used to be an art teacher and my grandpa works at um, the Mint Museum in North Carolina. He gives tours there, so he knows a lot too. So I think that's something that I could um, like do an interview in the future, so just sticking to some basics right now. But in uh, 1500 BCE, it says it favors drawing over colors and very little is left. About the 1300s, art was starting to turn away from the religion that dominated the Middle Ages and turned to show the individual man. This began the Renaissance period. 1600s. It began as a reaction against the intricate Mannerist style. These were more realistic and affecting emotions, beginning the Baroque period. And then from 1867 to 1886, started with a change of methodology, applying small strokes of pure color. Usually this has a lot of bright and vibrant colors and outdoor scenes. This is called Impressionism. From 1818, no, 1880 to 1920, this movement rejected the limitations of night, light and nature of Impressionism. These had shorter strokes of color, creating the stage of post-Impressionism. This movement was used to show the emotions and responses that the subject gives the artist instead of the light impressionistic style. This created Expressionism. So now we'll talk about the history of science. I thought this was actually super cool, and I believe I took all of this information. Again, this was like a year ago when I wrote all this, but I think I took it all from like a crash course video, which I'll talk about, I'm sure, at the end of this whole thing. Science is simply the word to describe a method of organizing our curiosity. The history of science is not only a story of humanity's collective movement from ignorance to knowledge. Science isn't a stable or single idea. Today, science can mean both our body of knowledge about the world as well as the methods we use to create that knowledge, or how we know the stuff that we know. Within that how, there are two main practices or things that we do that systematically generate knowledge. 1. Observe some uh, specific aspects of the world. For example, Darwin spent decades obsessively observing the subtle variations in different kinds of barnacles, orchids, turtles, birds, and other living things. This led them to theorize how they changed over time. And then two, conduct an experiment to answer some questions about the world. Did Galileo drop two metal balls of different masses from the Leaning Tower of Pisa to show that they fall at the same rate and disprove Aristotle's theory of gravity? I have to cough, hold on. <clears throat> Probably not, but Dutch thinkers Simon Stephen and Jan Cornets de Groot did conduct that experiment soon after. Your individual proof of some natural phenomenon works should be something that anyone can reproduce. The word scientist was only coined recently in historical terms in the 1830s and caught on around 1840. Um, the history of science, again. So this was made up by an English scientist named William Wewill which is a fun name, who is also a historian of scientist and a priest. 
Um, so, if we only cared about the history of people called scientists, our job would be easy. There aren't any until 1840. A around, no, sorry, and most, stop, please. Sorry, Andrew's in the room. And most people called scientists or natural philosophers looked suspiciously similar to one another. Take the Royal Society. Its members have been, until recently, almost exclusively rich English men. Even though their ranks have included many incredible scientists, they haven't represented anything like all knowledge makers. But the history of systematically knowing stuff goes back much further than the Royal Society and includes more types of people than English blokes. There we go. All right. So that was from apparently the Intro to History of Science, Crash Course History of Science number one. So the link will be in the show notes. So we're going to take a quick break before we talk about religion. So I'm going to quickly begin with a disclaimer. So religious practices can show how far evolution has gone. As a disclaimer, this is not targeted at any religion or person with religious beliefs. I support the Christianity belief, but I will still talk about the history of religion. I think it's an interesting thing to talk about. Anywho, um, so religion, a developmental and worthy change. So here's the introduction. National Geographic states, an important distinction has to be made here. There's a huge distinction between religion as an institution and religiousness or a religious individual. There's pretty good evidence that for a long time has been a notion of the transcendent, there being more in the world than just the material that has been important for humans. But what is new is big, institutionalized, organized structures. Let's take Christianity or Islam or Judaism. That's recent. Really, really recent. We tend to confuse humans' capacity to, or tendency to think there is more to the world than just what we see or touch with these huge institutions and the political, historical, and economic concepts they're trying to push. Additionally, human nature shows that religion is a big part of our culture, yet no other animals have been seen worshipping a lord that cannot be officially documented in anything other than the Bible, which has not been proven. The way that humans have the ability to worship loyally without any sort of confirmation, that's like no other animals. It is the creativity and the imagination that shows the evolutionary skills that have been developed over time. Wikipedia states, humanity's closest living relatives are common chimpanzees and bonobos or bonobos or something. What? Bonobos. Okay, Andrew knows. He's, super, he's actually like so good at animals. Okay, anywho... <laughs> These primates share a common ancestor with humans who lived 6 and 8 million years ago. It is for this reason that chimpanzees and bonobos are viewed as the best available surrogate for this common ancestor. Barbara King argues that while non-human primates are not religious, they do not exhibit some traits that would have been necessary for the evolution of religion. These traits include high intelligence, a capacity for symbolic communication, a sense of social norms, realization of self, of continuity, there is inconclusive evidence that Homo neanderthalus uh, may have buried their dead, which is evidence of the use of ritual. The use of burial rituals is thought to be evidence of religious activity, and there is no other evidence that religion existed in human culture before humans reached behavioral modernity. Other evidences have revealed that Homo neanderthalensis, that's a fun word, have made cave art, which would have been a way of symbolic thinking close to the religious one. This example shows the significance of religion in society. All right, economy, which honestly we're probably going to have, um, soon we're probably going to have an episode about economy and how it's being affected by the, by the, um, 
what's it called? The coronavirus. I don't know how I forgot that word uh, with my dad because he is a economy kind of guy. I don't know what he does, but he was a stock analyst for a while and now he does something different, which is, I think he's a senior. Yeah, he's a senior. Did I just say senior? Is that the right word? Senior vice president. Senior vice president of finance. I feel like senior just sounds weird now. Anywho, but we'll probably talk a little bit more about this later and he'll be able to give us a better background. But anywho, economics, according to Alfred Marshall, is a study of mankind in the ordinary business of life. It examines that part of an individual and social action which is most closely connected with the attainment and with the use of material requisites of well-being. Um, so here's the timeline. I can hear you anyway, Andrew. It's fine. You can make some noise. 1776. It was Smith founded what later generations were to call the English School of Classical Political Economy, known today as Classical Economics. In 1870, Ricardo hit upon the layer of com- law of comparative costs as proof of his model of free trade. 1930. The theory of income determination. Keynes was interested in the level of national income and the volume of employment rather than in the equilibrium of the firm or the allocation of resources. Those are all taken from Britannica. So how does this show evolutionary changes? The idea that the utility maximizing individual is inconsistent with the principle of evolutionary explanation. This point remains pertinent because the idea of fixed utility function, even if it had stop, even if it is one that has social or altruistic preferences, lacks a clear evolutionary and casual explanation of its origins. It is simply assumed. Modern behavioral economics relaxes the assumption of strict utility maximization in a pursuit of a more realistic theory. Yet, even here, there is a tendency to treat claimed departures from utility maximization as errors or deviations. Throughout mainstream economics, the utility-maximizing model retains its gravitational pull. That's a quote from, I think it's Hodgson. Sure. All right, writing. I like writing. It's cool. Anywho. (laughs) A compelling history of nature's beauty. I know. It's so cool. So fancy. So fresh. Writing is compelling to human nature, as it has been for centuries. In the beginning, people were hunter-gatherers. As time went on, people began forming civilizations that required work, evolutionary complex changes in the brain. Essentially, in doing so, writing became a typical thing that people began to do to learn to communicate. The University of Texas states, The three writing systems that developed independently in the Near East, China, and Mesoamerica shared a remarkable stability. Each preserved over millennia features characteristic of the original prototypes. The Mesopotamian cuneiform script can be traced furthest back into prehistory to an 8th millennium BC counting system using clay tokens of multiple shapes. The development from tokens to script reveals that writing emerged from counting and accounting. Writing was used exclusively for accounting until the 3rd millennium BC when the Sumerian concern for afterlife paved the way to literature by using writing for funerary inscriptions. The evolution from tokens to script also documents a steady progression in an abstracting data from one-to-one correspondence with three-dimensional tangible tokens to two-dimensional pictures, the invention of abstract numbers and phonetic syllabic Sure. Science, and finally, in the second millennium BC, the ultimate abstraction of sound and meaning with the representation of phonemes by the letters of the alphabet. My writing teacher is super interested in 
the history of writing, he really teaches that to us a lot. And he told us how really writing wasn't around at all in comparison to like talking. There was a big time gap and writing has just been available very recently as far as we are concerned in our history. It's pretty interesting. All right. So now you may wonder, I mean, the question in mind is whether or not humans are the pinnacle of evolution. However, one may put it, even though I'm not sure I entirely agree with this, I mean, there's more evidence to show that we are. Writing, economy, religion, science, art, and even music all connect in a way back to Darwin's theory of natural selection. Not only have these things evolved, they have molded our brain development in different directions, too. Evolution is one topic that can be seen in the minds of people. No other animals have developed the brain complexity that can create and communicate in several compatible languages, give a green piece of value worth, worship a lord without any hesitation and imagination, develop medicines to get rid of scientific difficulties, express their emotions in other forms, and create specific sounds with their vocal cords. In all of these ways, this creates the true conception that humans are the pinnacle of evolution. And that is the end of today's episode. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you learned a lot about random things or were simply entertained for a little while. If you like this podcast, please support us with monthly donations. It helps us get new equipment like this awesome microphone and improve our overall episodes. After the first few listeners chipped in, the microphone got here, and frankly, I have, I'm just so excited. <laughs> I mean, it sounds so much better. I didn't realize how bad it was. Oof. Every penny counts. Another way to help us out is by writing a review. Almost every streaming platform that we are on allows you to review our podcast, and it's really needed to get us out there. That is also strongly appreciated. And please, share this podcast with one person. That's all I ask. If you all can lean to share, there'll be like a stream, you know, and we'll be well known. And then, you know, we can get better microphones or... Well, I don't even know what we need at this point. We have a microphone. What else do we need? Um, ideas. And, yeah, ideas. Editors. <laughs> People who can, like, do it professionally and not a 14-year-old girl. Anywho, that concludes today's episode. Join us on Thursday for an episode that may or may not be a review on what young adult books to read right now, featuring one of my best friends, Annalise, who is also a book nerd. Anywho, if you have any questions, you can send us voice messages on our website. Go follow us on our socials at quarantine.pod on Instagram and at quarantinep, capital Q and P, on Twitter to get the newest information. You can also find us on Facebook by searching quarantine. I don't know how to use Facebook at this point. It's weird. I don't know how the parents know. Like, all the boomers are on Facebook, but I'm on... I don't know. I'm a teenager who doesn't know how to use it. It's just a lot of work, you know? So, I just share from my Instagram to Facebook. So, yeah. Maybe you just follow me on Instagram. Subscribe to our mailing list by making an account on our website, which is linked in the description. We are also now on the Wix app, and you can see all of our information there as well instead of visiting our individual domain. Thank you so much for listening and join us on Thursday. A special thanks to Anchor for sponsoring the podcast and Wix for the amazing website creation tools. Also, thank you to our many streaming platforms. I recently distributed Quarantine to many more, so deep breath. 
Alltop, Apple Podcasts, Audio Burst, Anchor, Breaker, Bullhorn, Castbox, Deezer, Fid, Google Play Music, Google Podcasts, Himalaya, Listen Notes, Mahalan, which is what I just want to say from now on, Player FM, Plex, Pocket Casts, Podbean, Podchaser, Radio Public, SoundCloud, Speaker, no, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, and soon there will be even more. And that's insane. Have a great day. And quickly, I'd like, I keep forgetting to like thank the listeners at the end. So thank you for listening. You are also making a difference because every listen does earn some money. And it's, thank you. Like, that's awesome. Um, also, I just want to say, whatever this Mahalan, Mahalan thing is, I think that's where most of the French people are listening from because now like 50% of my listeners are French. So thank you, French people. Um, Au revoir.